You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Hello, I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And you're listening to Into the Portal, your gateway to the bazaar. On this episode, we once again tap into our Patreon vault and take you guys on a trip back to the Dark Ages as we search for the legendary King Arthur. Man or myth? You decide. And special thanks to our Patreon supporters who made this episode a reality. And to our latest Patreon members as well, Audrey and Paige M. You guys are rock stars. Thank you so much. And now, folks... Let's get ready for a special Patreon vault release on one of the most famous figures of the British Isles that may or may not have existed at all. 490 CE, somewhere in the British Isles. A dense fog rolled across the hills and the shallow glen that lay before the knights under Arthur's command those brave enough to ride forth from the court at Camelot towards an enemy that they knew all too well. Sixteen hundred strong had gathered to stave off attacks from the warring Saxon clans, waiting in eerie silence. Nothing but the wind to be heard, unable to see beyond several feet in front of them, waiting for the bloodshed to begin. Then, The silence was broken by a distant horn. Faint, but growing louder and louder. Echoing through the fog as if it were an apparition wailing from a distant past. And then, the clanging of metal. Armor and shields. Footsteps. And the roar of attack. Such was the narrative of many tales of the Dark Ages. However, to some, they are far beyond mere fable. Sometime during the 5th and 6th centuries CE, there was said to have lived a fierce warrior, noble leader, and a mighty king known as the legendary Arthur. Ruler of the Britons and defeater of the warring Saxons, King Arthur is arguably the most well-known historical figure in the history of the British Isles. But was he in fact a true historical figure, lost through the cracks of official recorded history? Or could Arthur be more than just one man? Welcome to ITP's May full-length exclusive episode. Join us as we search for Arthur's bones, the court of Camelot, and the truth behind the man believed by some to be a very real king. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. We are talking about something that's kind of been on the list for a while, falls under a few categories of ITP, but we're talking about the legend of King Arthur today. Mm-hmm. Truth, myth, was he a real person? Did he really accomplish the things that are told in the fables? So many incredible stories, right? Or was he simply an amalgamation of a bunch of different people and historical figures and amazing accomplishments that's right so we're gonna get into it we're all. diving into it so obviously one of the most well-known historical figures that's ever existed ever really i mean everybody has heard of king arthur before right but the question of course is did he really exist or was he a king of just legend and you know told by nobles to their children and things like that right because obviously he exemplified everything you would want in a warrior and a king so yeah this episode we're going to dig right into the search for his bones that's one part of it The other part of it is the search for Camelot. Those are kind of the Mm. two avenues here to try to prove whether or not 
he is indeed a real person. And that beep is our bacon. If you guys can hear that, I don't know if you can. Bacon we're go get that. <laughs> okay, where was I? So King Arthur, definitely the most legendary character to come out of the British Isles for sure. And, you know, his character and, you know, stories of his bravery were a massive, massive part in the early formation of British identity. Because, I mean, for a lot of different reasons, we're going to discuss it as we go along here. But again, man, legend, myth, multiple figures, what the heck are we dealing with here? Mm-hmm. But there's so many different legends. So for instance, at various times throughout history, he was associated with various different groups. And this makes it really murky, right? For example, in 1040, he was written as a figurehead of the Celtic Renaissance. Whereas at other times, he was referred to simply as a battle leader for the Britons. Other times, he's been associated with Roman soldiers, Hmm. Roman centurions. Seems like everyone's trying to get a piece of Arthur. A little bit. (laughs) And of course, this is a period where very, very few records are kept. So what is the era that we're dealing with here? It's the era of the Dark Ages, called so mostly because of that. Essentially, there was not a lot of written records and people had lost a lot of things that that had been gained during sort of like the golden era of uh, the ancient sort of past. There was a kind of a murky time in the British Isles around this time. I always think of Tristan as old. Definitely. (laughs) Back to this. Because there was a lot of just warring tribes. There was a lot of very sectionalized regional sort of powers and they were all kind of struggling and there was a a lot of less trade a lot less communication like we already said it was basically dominated by superstitions of the time there was a lot of religious debates going on too Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of just instability i would say definitely yes actually you know it's interesting london was founded (laughs) we just discovered this like because i was thinking to myself like london is way more modern than these times but no it was actually founded in 50 a.d right and it wouldn't have looked anything like how it looks today, obviously. Yeah. And I kind of, it was funny because I was like, oh, we're referring to London as a city. I feel like even the word city in itself has way different connotations. But essentially, you were right, Andrew. It's a concentration of a lot of people. It's a high population area, yeah. all living in the same area. And um, mostly, like, well, they're specialized, right? So they would have been serving specific functions within that sort of right. polity or whatever you want to call it. But they were dangerous places. Yeah dangerous mostly because they were made of wood for the for the large part like there would have been stone used in some but for sure wood was more widely available and most castles were made of wood at this time including uh the surrounding structures so once one building goes up in smoke all of it's basically going up in smoke and that actually happened in tristan and Isolde, right so yeah they were ransacked and um I, i believe it was a group of saxons in the beginning of that movie that come and just like raid the village burn it to the ground and then Tristan, at this time, he's a baby, and he sees his parents basically get slaughtered along with the rest of his sort of council, his town council. Mm-hmm. And then from there, well, I'm just getting into a review of Tristan and his old hey, now, but, but from there, Friday. they end up deciding to build a stone castle that's much stronger. Not a bad so, idea, guys. Right? Not mm-hmm. a bad idea. Yeah. So it was a very violent time. Life expectancy at this point was about 30 years old, which you were lucky to achieve because it was so, so bloody, right? There was so much um, just violence in general and and war. So a lot of young men were just sent like lambs to the slaughter. Yes, they were indeed. And then women, obviously, uh, and all the villages and everything would have been just raided and pillaged and raped and whatever else. Yep. Lovely times. Don't you want to go back and just relive um, that? Could you, could you imagine just being a fly on the wall? Like 50, no. 50 AD. I feel like every time we watch Game of Thrones, we're experiencing that. A little like, bit, sort of. Uh, but yeah, so this was the time where essentially there were references to Arthur. This came in the form of poetry, epic tales about heroic battles and quests under the helm of a man named Arthur. Mm-hmm. And... It's, it's again, right, it's very vague, but these started to appear at around the 5th and 6th centuries uh, AD, and he was kind of referred to as a ruler of the Britons, known as a fierce warrior, mm-hmm. a great commander, greatly respected by all. This is interesting, right, because he has all these references in literature and in, you know, poetry, whatever else, yeah. and, and oral traditions mostly. Right. But there was really no, like, quote-unquote, known or confirmed record of him before 594 AD. So there's kind of a gap in the history, and uh, it kind of made scholars doubt his real existence. So they kind of thought, oh, no, he's just a a piece of fiction. He's just a piece of the literature, a piece that was designed to inspire the Britons, which would have a lot of um, political power, right? You know what I mean? Just to rally people together. So whether or not he was a real person, he would have served a very uh, important function. Yeah. 
So Definitely. it's interesting, right? So many scholars do kind of, uh, they debate it, obviously, and that's what we're getting into today, but they really doubt his existence. There are some that lean towards supporting it, and then there's others that lean away from it. Yeah. So again, right, like, let's get into some of the more specifics here. So by 43 AD, the Romans had basically conquered the British Isles. So they uh, were ruling over these Britons for the next 400 years. By the time Romans abandoned Britain, it was about 410 AD. And they essentially left it to the mercy of the Germanic Angles, the Saxons, and the Jute invaders. Mm -hmm. So this is the time of Arthur. So this is a time where they needed a hero. And this was their hero. It's like that song, right? (laughs) I need a hero. They really did. (laughs) Yeah. They absolutely did. And like even what you described up above there too with like London and it being kind of, you know, densely populated, like fire traps, like rough Mm -hmm. places to live. It's like, you know, life expectancy was really low. Mm -hmm. You really need a hero in times like this, right? I mean, you, or at least you want to believe in one. It's stories like this that keep people Mm -hmm. mentally alive, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Keep the, keep the faith strong. Right. Because if there's someone that, you know, is just seemingly invincible and he's on your side, then how much power does that give you? Everything's fine, right? Yeah, not really. 2020 has been a dumpster fire, seriously messing with people's mental health. And if you're anything like me, you could probably use some help. So perhaps it's time you try BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com is a professional online counseling service that assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist from the comfort of your home, office, or wherever you are. What's awesome is that BetterHelp.com is more affordable than traditional offline counseling as well. So you can connect with a licensed professional in under 24 hours for professional help, not self-help. And BetterHelp is committed to you right from the get-go. BetterHelp is committed to you from the get-go, from finding a great therapeutic match to making it easy and free to change counselors if the need arises. BetterHelp.com has the huge advantage of being available on multiple platforms across the globe, so you have the help you need wherever you are, without ever sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com portal. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash portal. Let's get into some of the legends because that's obviously what we're working with for information on Arthur, right? And there's so many different stories about this king. And this is a point of contention amongst, amongst the scholars, right? Because we're working with references from really early dates And it comes all the way up into the most recent work, which is uh, by Sir Thomas Mallory, which we actually have a copy of that in our bookshelf here, but very, very packed full of fiction, right? I mean, it's a work of fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it inspired by part pieces of truth from previous works is kind of like what scholars are trying to piece together when it comes to Arthur, right? But some of the, some of the legends that we all know about, right? Versions of the legends told about magic being used. Merlin is involved, right? Great battles, of course, where he slaughters, you know, 900 men all by himself. Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table, um, the Round Table being the centerpiece of the Arthurian world, really, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because this is where he's, this is the hub where he goes out and he's con- not conquering, but he's protecting the Britons, right? Mm-hmm. With his knights. That's such an important symbol, even that, right? The idea yeah. of Arthur sitting with his council at this epic round table. Like, exactly. Yeah. According to a 13th century poet um, by the name of Leamon, Arthur ordered the table to be built for him by a famous Cornish carpenter who somehow made the table capable of actually seating 1,600 men. Like a small mercenary army is essentially how it's described, right? That's like his, a big table. That's a big table. Um, does seem a little crazy, right? Some of the sites that have been found where archaeologists are like, this could be the Great Hall of King Arthur, much, much smaller halls, okay. right? You're not going to be fitting 1,600 people in there. So okay. mm-hmm. definitely goes along with the embellished legends, right? Mm-hmm. Potentially, potentially, because we haven't actually found... Camelot, if it's a real place. Right. Some people think they have. We're okay. going to get into this sec, right? <laughs> Other stories claim that it was Merlin, the king's actual magician, who, and obviously the classic wizard, right? Oh, yeah. Some of the legends uh, talk about Merlin being the one who actually made the table. He made it round in the likeness of the world. 
um, and sent out a call to all the bravest and truest knights to come and join the fellowship of King Arthur and sit at this at the, the court of Camelot. Oh, that's epic. That reminds me of that, uh, what is it, the white wizard in the oh, yeah. Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, totally does, right? <laughs> Other accounts, a little bit more reasonable, um, talk about as many as 150 knights who have sat at the round table. That sounds a little bit more likely, right? Yeah. Um, you know, or at least have been under his command and yada, yada, yada. Regardless, the search for the Holy Grail is kind of the pinnacle of the legends linked to King Arthur, his knights and himself. This was their most noble quest. And of course, we all know of this from the Monty Python movie. Of course. Of course. <laughs> King Arthur and the search for the Holy Grail. <laughs> and they they pull out all these characters like King Arthur, uh, his uh, Guine- Guinevere and mm-hmm. uh, Lancelot yep. and uh, all these... The Black Knight. Exactly. <laughs> these classic characters, right? <laughs> let's um let's get into some of the references in history and lore so we can try to actually piece together all right. if he's a real person or not here. Let's do it. So the first reference we found... Um, in a, on, a, on a website called Historic UK, and it just covers a lot of different history stuff. It's dedicated to cases like Arthur, and the earliest reference, in, reference to him, according to this website, is a poem, and this is corroborated by a lot of different stuff, but a poem from around 594 AD. This was a, written by a guy, oh, this is going to be tough to pronounce. Yep. Um, oh, and <laughs> an iron gold, golden? Gold, golden? Golden. Uh, it sounds like <laughs> Norwegian or something. It kind of does. But anyway, this is it's actually Welsh. So oh. the er- earliest surviving Welsh poem that consists of a series of separate elegies and talks about different battles, talks about um, an, a figure fighting against the Angles of Dyra and Bernica, but basically it just talks about the Britons being killed and then a figure of Arthur comes up. In one of these elegies, there's a reference to a man named Arthur. It doesn't say King Arthur, except that he was already a famous figure, but refers to him as like a battle leader. Okay. So, mm-hmm. not a king. Hmm. But not this a is king. The, this is one okay. of the earliest references to him. But in this poem, it was kind of interesting because it almost sets the stage for the idea that. It was almost like when, um, we're, was it Herodotus? Where Remember when he made references to people as if they had already, you know, been famous? Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't Herodotus. It was another ancient text that we were looking at and we were trying to decide almost a very similar thing. But it was interesting because in this text, it's almost referring to him as if everyone already knows who he is. So as if he's already a famous figure. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which so is important. Like, exactly. So it's not introducing him. It's more so just alluding to just, him. Yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. already know about it. I'm just re- referencing it. Yeah. So that, in my mind, begs the question, okay, so this poem survives, right? What about all the ones that could have been around previous to it? Or even yeah. just, uh, not even poems, but just songs or something, you know, totally. or, or whatever. And totally. people are just passing it word or mouth to mouth kind of thing and from village to village. And then this is the one that happens to solidify and and make it through the tests of time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's the classic thing that we've said a million times where it's like absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And we think about like the library of Alexandria and Alexander the Great burning that to the ground. It's like what the things we could know about our past, the things we could know that actually were real or existed that scholars debate whether they ever happened or not. I know. Yeah. It's crazy to think, right? Yeah, yeah. We're jumping up ahead a little bit here now into uh, 830 AD, and he appears again in the history of the Britons. Now, this was written by a guy. In, why are all these people's names so hard to pronounce? Because they're ancient. Nennius, Nennius <laughs> of something other, something Nennius as, the <laughs> philosopher. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> in know. this version, he is depicted as again a warrior, not a king. So, but 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 like you just said, referred to as if people would already know who he is. Right. So he like specifically referred to as a battle leader, like I'm Mm -hmm. air quoting here. Well, the thing is, too, you have to remember at this point, especially like so early on and they're in this very murky transitory period of history. And the idea that if you were a successful general, you were considered a king because you actually had real power. Right. You know what I mean? Like you had men who respected you and would fight for you. That to me is more of a king than someone sitting on a throne with a with a crown on his head saying like, oh, I'm the king of whatever. Like that. Well, and we've you know learned I mean? from Game of Thrones. <laughs> learned from Game of Thrones. It's like, no, but really though, because we talk about it all the time because we're watching. We're like halfway. We're catching we're up. We're so obsessed. But the idea that like a th- <laughs> there's no significance to the capital. No. Right? There's no significance to the throne, to the crown. Not really. None of it. It's, it's all, all symbolic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So when they turn to 
Rob Stark before he gets where right doesn't make it in the end. But mm-hmm. uh, King of the North, there you are, King now. Yeah. Anybody could say that exactly. If you got the army to back it up, you can do it. And even posthumously, he could have been awarded that title, right? And not actually have been it during his lifetime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, maybe we are dealing with a king, self-proclaimed mm-hmm. by a group of people, his knights, 150 subjects in a small place that he's protecting. He is maybe a battle leader, mm-hmm. but so epic so that he ended up being known as a king throughout history. The next reference is actually called the History of Kings. Okay. Now, this was uh, Joffrey. <laughs> oh, God. Joffrey of Mammoth or uh, Monmouth. That name is, mm. oh, that's going to be ruined for me forever. I'm sorry to all the Jeffreys out there who are wonderful people, but I just can't. Joffrey in particular. Yeah, if you pronounce it Jeff, if it's Jeffrey, that's great. Joffrey. Joffrey. Yeah. Mm. Puke in my mouth a little bit. I'm sure the actor that plays Joffrey is a, is a oh fine individual. No, he's going to be the next um, Malfoy in the acting world. You love to hate him, though. You <laughs> what know was what that mean? one like, horror movie he was in? And it was like this really weird, like, it was like kind of like a haunting movie where there was this like weird goo in the corner. Remember that? It was like that big dark thing. And they were stuck in this house. And it was Malfoy. essentially, yeah. So it started off with like, they they release a demon or something. And they it's filmed like, you know, it's like the style where they have the camcorder and they're all sitting in the room. There's like four students. Okay. And then Malfoy ends up like dying in the very first scene or something like that. I can't remember the name huh. of that one. If anyone knows that, we should cover it on Film Friday because it was actually kind of a freaky movie. Actually, yeah. Po- comment on this. On this episode here and let us know if we you should do. just Google it after we Malfoy should. in a horror movie. We'll just get the list of his because <laughs> that's his real name. <laughs> I don't know what his name is. <laughs> we just call everybody by their movie names, right? Like the Lannister <laughs> from the Godzilla movie, the <laughs> Ma- Malfoy from. <laughs> oh, man. OK, where was I? Talking Joffrey. about the uh, the history of kings. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a translation, obviously. It's a Historia Regum Britannae, history of kings of Britain. Um, <laughs> that's terribly pronounced, (laughs) written around uh, 1136 AD. So significantly later, right? And he's obviously adding in a little, he's pizzazzing it up, just like the other later versions would be as well. Mm-hmm. Like everyone did. Herodotus did it. He did it. I don't know. Actually, perfect that you say Herodotus because this guy is actually compared to him a lot. Oh, really? Um, h- historians will often say that uh, this work was basically the medieval equivalent to a, you know, a New York Times bestseller of fiction. And it was popular not just within with British audiences, but actually with uh, Saxon and Norman readers as well. Really? Which is kind of ironic. Yeah. Well... I almost feel like maybe they could have claimed, or not claimed him as their own, but like he could have been equally inspiring for them, you know? Yeah, or it, yeah, potentially. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was fighting against these guys, but it's like, like we said at the beginning, it's like associated with Celtic origins, associated with other groups, and there's a lot going on at this time, mm-hmm. right? It is very much like Game of Thrones, tribal tribal factions and people oh, yeah. trying to usurp power in small... Continental forces totally. trying to overtake the Isles, all totally. this kind of thing. There was the, the Francia Empire later on and like the, um, yeah, the, the middle era there. But yeah, lots going on. Yeah. Lots, lots of different people wanting, wanting the throne, no, right. so to speak. Here's the thing that happens though with this publication, right? It, it comes along... <clears throat> with a bunch of other ones. It basically inspires a significant number of other Arthurian tales that were popping up across continental Europe at this time because he was such a famous figure. It was really growing. You know, it, it, he, he pops up in later works as well. So like a 12th century French poet, uh, Chrétien de, Tro- de Troyes, uh, um, he introduces the concepts of sort of courtly love and kind of the more, the classical stories of Guinevere and Lancelot and the noble knights and trying to save people and this type of thing, it was less dark. This was introduced by the, by a French poet. So this is, it just goes to show how murky it's all getting, right? It's like the, it's, it's like the line of people, you start a story on one end, you're whispering it through the ears and you end up with this French poet and in uh, in the 12th century by the 12th century. Yeah. So that's this quite a number way, of centuries. Exactly. Exactly. And everyone would have just it's one of those things, right? You just adapted it to your own narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, you use the figure, you use the the, the iconic sort of um, the tropes, right, of the time. Right. So here's here's the problem. Here's the reference to Herodotus with the uh, history of kings of Britain. Mm-hmm. It, the dates are out of order <laughs> in his work. So the chronology of events is off. Um, even in, if, in the French one? In, no, in the uh, History of Kings of Britain. Oh, That okay. inspired the French poem. I see. And this is his comparison to Herodotus, right? Because it's he wasn't there 
right? Mm. Herodotus was doing the same thing. He wasn't actually there. He's writing about, you know, what some priest said to a priest said to a priest said to a priest about a bird, but you weren't actually there. Right. Um, so his chronology was off in his works as well. Okay. Can any of this be taken truthfully? Right. Can we, can we, can we dissect it and get a nugget of fact or of historical truth out of it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very, yeah. So it's so funny. We're already up to the 12th century here. So we started off with references in the fifth century. Right. So in the 500s AD, late 500s, like 594. Yeah. And now we're all the way up to the 1100s. Yeah. Hmm. And moving in further now. So even by this point, we can argue, even if these people are kind of creating their own sort of fictional masterpiece out of this figure, we, you know, that's where it gets so much more murky as, as, as we continue to sort of unravel whether or not this is a real person or not. I almost want to make the case that it's almost like the Mandela effect, even if he never really existed, he does exist because he exists in the cultural collective unconscious, right? Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, and a mashup of multiple figures potentially. Exactly. But I'm still of the mind that he could have been a single figure and that it's almost the reverse effect. He could have been a single figure that's conflated with a multiple figures. And now he's like a kaleidoscope of different Arthurs. Right. Mm -hmm. There could have been one Arthur. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of like what we're working with here. Exactly. And then even if he didn't actually make all those achievements, he just kind of, you know, they just get assigned to him because it's, right. it just builds it up more. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So he's mentioned again in the 15th century. This is the most recent, most famous, arguably, right. the Orte de Arthur, the Sir Thomas Mallory version talking about his legend, right? And he focuses a lot on the battles of King Arthur. Yeah. He's successful in numerous different battles. And in one of them, I mentioned this at the beginning, he even single-handedly kills over 900 men by himself. Yeah, that's pretty epic. Pretty epic. We pulled, I think, just three of his, there was a whole bunch, but we pulled three of his kind of main battles to kind of reference here Mm -hmm. because they were kind of unique and just leading up to his, his eventual, well, disappearance, I guess you would say. In his final battle. Right. Okay. Or his demise, maybe. Potentially. Well, we have the first one here. It's called the the Battle at the Mouth of the River Glenny. It's his first battle. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty local. So there was two candidates for this location. So we're, yeah, so we're deciphering whether or not this is a battle that could really have happened or not. Well, not really happened, but you know what I mean? Like where the possible location of it could have been. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So there was two Two candidates, two big ones. There is one location in Northumberland called the River Glen. And there's also one in Lincolnshire. Well, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. But anyways. That um, right. Yeah. So that's called just the River Glen. You know what's funny too? We have a lot of references to Glen in Kelowna. We've got Glenmore. We've got, oh, there's so many road names that are like have Glen, Glen in Glen Valley. Glen um, Valley. Right. And so I was thinking to myself, like my grandpa's name is Glen. And I was like, what is a Glen? Like why Glen? Glen just means small valley. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Usually with river. Or, or, yeah, river or some sort of water in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool, hey? Fun fact of the day. <laughs> there you go. I'm full of them, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so there there have been excavations, and especially at this one location in, like I said, Northumberland, the Yevering Bell. It's a hill fort. Okay. Yeah. So essentially it looks overlooks the flat area where the River Glen flows into the River Till, so these, these two, this sort of meeting of the rivers is called the mouth of the River Glen. So that kind of makes sense when we're going back to the reference in uh, Sir Thomas Mallory's book there, The Battle at the Mouth of the River Glenny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, pretty, pretty, pretty good fit. Yeah. Yeah. So excavations have shown that it was occupied at the time of Arthur. And it would have been a very strategic location. So he could have commanded his armies from this location to the battle below. So that's, that's pretty cool. Hey, All so right. that, that to me kind of helps, helps demystify or defantasticalize, <laughs> if that's a word, <laughs> the, the sort of the very colorful writings of Sir Thomas Mallory, because yeah. he, he was very much like that. Yeah. And just, just so... Just just the simple fact that you could do these excavations and find this evidence. You know what? I feel like LIDAR would be very important in all this too. Definitely. It's starting to be employed um, in oh, the perfect. search for King Arthur and um, Sweet. yeah, remnants of Camelot, remnants of battle areas and stuff like that. And there have been, you know, uh, like tools and swords and iron and things like that found. Big alarm. That bacon's looking pretty good. 
Oh, yeah. Mm, can't wait. All right. Let's get into another really significant battle. This was the ninth battle, and it was referenced by, obviously, like Sir Thomas Mallory. Mm-hmm. All of these were referenced by him. And so this was one that occurred at the city of Légion, and it was, the battle itself was called Carleon. And essentially, what happened here was another, obviously another epic battle led by Arthur. C- successful battle. And since then, they've ex- they've excavated, they've found this location. Yeah. And so some put forward, well, there is alternatives, but for the most part, this Carleon has been identified and it was actually a Roman military base. Right. So today there's actually a town there. Uh, it's a few miles north of Newport in southern Wales. Yeah. So they actually uncovered ancient Roman mil- military barracks outside the city walls. They can actually still be seen. Yeah. So they're the only visible remnants of these uh, legionary barracks of the Romans in Europe. Pretty crazy. Very so cool. there were multiple buildings and they were built at about, they think roughly 75 AD. So this is at the prime after they had invaded the British Isles and they were setting up their rule. I think, and I'm sorry, just to, just to go back there for a second. I think mm-hmm. they mean in in like Western Europe, like in the British Isles for Roman legionary barracks, because you'd think, I mean, they got to be remains in the rest of the Roman empire, right? Oh yeah. Italy and Croatia and these places. That's how I interpreted that. Yes. Even though it does just say generally in Europe, but I would imagine British Isles. Yes. Anyways, but essentially these buildings, so there was multiple buildings and they would have held between 80 to a hundred Roman soldiers altogether. These buildings would have had like the base itself would have housed about 6,000 men. So yeah. you can imagine this would have been a really epic battle if Arthur had really taken, um, if it had really happened, which I kind of am thinking it did. <laughs> he would have been greatly outnumbered even with his, even with that 1,600 number, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1,600 versus 6,000. Potentially. Exactly. So then um, when you get into the whole references of him slaying 1,000 men or 900 men with his sword. And, By himself. And exactly. And a lot of his other men doing that, then you can imagine that that would have equaled success, there's, obviously. There's like, many, there's comparisons to like, you know, 300 and these types of stories, mm-hmm. right? Um, Being very strategic with how you're going about your battle, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the hero's journey too, right? I mean, you're, you, are cl- you are overcoming great obstacles. It's not yeah. just... Uh, the odds are stacked against you. Always. All the time. Always, right? Yeah. We're jumping to the final battle. You know, we kind of just chose three. Mm-hmm. And this is the Battle of Camlin. This, this was his final one because he was mortally wounded. And we don't know exactly where he ended up after this. Mm-hmm. It's a point of contention. Mystery. And it's definitely a mystery. So there's various, uh, the, the stories differ on how the battle actually started. Joffrey of Mammoth's account is of, you know, it's a normal battle, both sides lined up and then charged into battle, right? The classic kind of uh, <laughs> medieval way of doing things. That's not very strategic. No. In other sources, the battle is set by misunderstanding. So Mallory makes the beginning of the battle a complete misunderstanding. He talks about how a knight is bitten by an by an adder, like mm-hmm. a which a is snake. A, a snake, mm-hmm. and he draws his sword to kill the snake. And when the others see this, um, they assume that it's an attack, and it's basically just Uh-oh. this right misunderstanding. So that oh, would man. be pretty unfortunate, right? That's pretty bad diplomacy. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it, on 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 whose side though? I don't know. People are just jumping the gun there. Yeah, just settle down. You know what I mean? (laughs) Come on. But of course, basically at the end of this, I mean, Arthur, we don't know exactly how, but he is mortally wounded, stabbed. And he's taken to the Isle of Avalon to be healed of his wounds. And this is the last we actually hear of him. This is the last we have any reference to Arthur. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows where Avalon is. No. Right? It's this mysterious place. It's called the Isle. Is it an an island? Is it... uh, is, is it a peninsula? Just, is it a peninsula? Is the mm-hmm. is it just is that just a misnomer to throw people off of where he was actually taken to to try to be healed of his wounds, mm, right? Yeah. No one knows where this last resting place actually was. But then the monks at Glastonbury Abbey. Now, I don't actually have where is this 1539? Uh, it was actually destroyed by Henry VIII. So this was just slightly before this. Hmm. The monks at Glastonbury Abbey find what they believe to be king arthur's grave beneath the actual structure right so they they basically they they stumble upon a hidden chamber more or less right classic into the portal goodness it was it was buried that's right Mm -hmm. inside there was an oak coffin so they claim holding uh the remains of a gigantic man 
who had been severely wounded in the head. Oh. So King Arthur was known to be a large individual, a for, you know, very intimidating man. Mm-hmm. So I'm picturing at the time here, way back in the day, he was probably like, you know, over six feet tall. Probably. You know, mm-hmm. of, you know, well-proportioned individual, right? Yeah. Buried beside him, so the monks say, was a woman with a plate of gold, with gold hair. Mm-hmm. So like Guinevere. And it also contained a lead cross that actually identified the bones as King Arthur's. It said, quote, here lies, the, here lies buried the famous King Arthur, buried in the Isle of Avalon. So they believed that Glastonbury was, was Avalon itself. Hmm. So it wasn't actually an isle. It was just like a sanctuary or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? Um... That's very interesting. The only thing that makes me suspicious about these monks is the fact that we have come across these references before to monks holding artifacts of extremely valuable amounts. (laughs) That was a really weird way to say that. (laughs) Extremely valuable artifacts. (laughs) Let's say that. I, I could see them maybe, maybe these monks need a source of income and perhaps they could have created this in the hopes that they will be, you know, put down Rewarded. in world history. Yeah. And yeah. Hmm. But at the same time, the fact that there hopefully was actual skeletons, like, is that actually confirmed? Do we know where those bones are now? So no, um, but hmm. this is what we do know. So in 1539, the Abbey was destroyed by King Henry VIII. Now okay. this was during power struggles with the Catholic church and sort of the back and forth Protestant you know what I mean? That, yeah. that old chestnut, right? Yeah. So the King evidence from that initial discovery with, by the monks has been lost forever. But there has been excavations since. And actually in the 1960s, they did extensive excavations of the abbey. And there were tombs discovered. Okay. They had, but, they, but they had been, the, the indication was that they had been access disturbed many, many times. Yeah. Not, okay. in, not, 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 you know, not, not just the, <coughs> uh, the fact that it was like burnt down, destroyed. What about the cross? Not there. Mm. Gone. She gone. Because that to me is like, obviously you would have, if you're burying King Arthur, you're going to create something to mark the grave. And that to me, an iron cross, like that's pretty epic. Yeah. The fact that he was buried with his lady again, like. But so, so here, but here, here we have with this, we've talked about three battles out of, this is just three of many. Mm -hmm. All of them have been corroborated as potentially true. There's evidence of the first one. There's a Roman barracks that was that is definitely there. It would have had soldiers in it. They would have been the ones fighting against people like Arthur that are trying to rise up against them, right? Mm-hmm. The final battle as well, there's some corroborating evidence for that. And then we also have this story from the monks. The abbey was real. The tombs are real. Is their story real? We don't know. We'll never know. But each one of these stories has a dash of truth in it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just it. Is there a nugget of truth to the legend? I think we have established that there is multiple nuggets of truth to the legend. Definitely. And, you know, I just, there's another thought that you can add to the layer of this hodgepodge of confusion. <laughs> well, not really. But <laughs> the idea that what if there was a line of Arthurs? What if Arthur Ooh. had a son? Who took over? Well, like, they, you know what I mean? Like, right. And I mean, like, for this episode, we don't get into that because there's so many different characters. There are yes. sons, like, there are figures that are, like, you know, Arthur's son. Yeah. Multiple figures that are his wife. Sometimes it's referred to, like, I think Guinevere is sometimes referred to as his sister, sometimes referred to as his wife. Wasn't there something going on with her and Lancelot, too? Y- there's all kinds of weird mishmash and that's different just, That, to roles. me, is, like, the soap opera version of the history, right? right. So not actually... Yes. Also, yeah. it is possibly a weird kind of like misunderstanding because people often had the same names back right. in these days, right? Yeah, totally. So he very well could have a sister that's named such and such and then marries someone named such and such as well. And it's just poorly mm-hmm. kept records, right? Yeah. We're kind of getting into, not the end end here, but we're getting into Camelot because that is the sort of third thing, I guess. We're, we're looking for proof of the battles, trying to find his bones, Glastonbury Abbey. The other thing we can do to try to prove if he was a real person or not is find Camelot. This was mm-hmm. this was his kingdom, right? This was where mm-hmm. the throne was for him. Yeah. So the legendary location of Arthur's Round Table. Can you imagine if you could actually find the Round Table itself? Oh my goodness. <laughs> that would be that would be epic, right? That's like finding Noah's Ark. <laughs> Basically, would be totally would be. There's four proposed sites for the very real Camelot to have been located, right? The court of King Arthur, and. It's funny because the, the round table doesn't actually appear until Joffrey of Mammoth. 
Man, mon, man mouth. Mon mouth. Ugh, free. Right? Mon mouth? Yeah, that, this is pronounced. I typed this in differently. Oh, okay. it, it's like mon. <laughs> anyway, Joffrey, my guy. But he, so he, he wrote this history of the Kings of Britain, right? And this is in, in this, he mentions the, you know, the great castle, massive distinction from the other earlier references to Arthur as a war leader, right? Like in a, in a wooden shelter, mm-hmm. not in a castle, not with a round table with 1600 men. I don't really know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he, so yeah, he writes about a great castle that sits atop a mighty hill looking over a valley, but where could this have been? Where indeed? Would, was this a real place? So of course, ne- the need for Camelot and the heroics of Arthur is based on the Saxons, the enemy, the Saxons, right? But in now in the modern search, we know that their relationship is actually more nuanced. It wasn't so much like just starch enemies of each other. Starch. <laughs> staunch. <laughs> staunch. <laughs> starch. Staunch enemies of each other, right? <laughs> so that kind of complicates things too, because that makes it that could put Camelot in any number of different places. Okay. So there's a uh, there's a few different ones that we're going to talk about then, hey? Right. Okay. So the first one would be in South Wales. This is known as uh, a Carleon. This is referred to by Joffrey, and it's also referred to th- by that French uh, poet from the 12th century, that uh, Christian de Troyes. And this places Camelot in Carleon, South Wales. So, like we said, this was already this was one of three uh, Roman legionary forts of Britain. Maybe and, he took over a fort. Then. Well, he could have easily, right? If you defeat them in battle, then obviously you take over the territory. And like like we said, right, this was excavated, and it would have been strategic. So why wouldn't you take it over? And that's why it's mentioned in later works rather than the earlier works, potentially. Perhaps, okay. Perhaps. Okay. Perhaps. Um, so yeah. So the Welsh. So we're in South Wales here. Um, it's actually kind of interesting, though. The word Carleon, even though it sounds kind of... Oh, I'm pronouncing it very French. I'm so sorry. But it, it sounds typically Celtic, according to most people. But it's actually um, a corruption of two words, two Latin words, uh, meaning fortress and legion. So castrum and legio, mm. which, again, sorry, mispronouncing that. I feel like that's just like the curse of the show is to me just mispronouncing everything. I'm gonna. I'm just going to go ahead and say this now. I don't care. Well, we say that we don't <laughs> like, care, and then we go ahead and care. I don't. I don't. I'm going to just care a little bit. All right. <laughs> I'll care a tiny bit. Just because I know it does irk some people. Screw those people. I'm sorry. Hey, hey, be nice. Okay. So, interestingly enough, the Welsh are direct descendants of the Romano-Britons of English, England and Wales. Did you hear that? What was that? That was my stomach. That was that sounded like Godzilla rising from the depths. It sounded like thunder. To me. I don't know if you guys heard that on the mic. We should, if, I wish we could have sound if, sound. If oh. you heard that, and I heard it in my headphones, so everyone's gonna hear. That oh one. man, Amber's getting hungry. Yeah, I need Amber's my bacon. Getting hungry. I need the bacon. Man. Oh man, oh, all right. Okay, okay. But anyways, I was going back to the Welsh here. <laughs> <laughs> you patrons sure get the the raw. You get the raw ITP. You do. You get the real Amber the and Andrew. Man. No. This is us, guys. <laughs> this is us. This Just is like that. This is me now. <laughs> okay (laughs) welsh (laughs) oh my goodness okay so like i said these were descendants of the romano britons of england and wales who were essentially pushed back towards the west of britain by the anglo-saxons in the fifth and sixth centuries Hmm. yeah so arthur obviously considered a perhaps romano british leader um fighting obviously these anglo-saxon invaders so the idea that this could have been at carleone is actually quite plausible it would have been very strategic like i already mentioned right so if you win the battle there even if it had evidence of being overrun by romans those romans were gone by 410 so there you go right and sort and this sort of description is that he may have had connections with it right like he wasn't just a a, a, yeah, a, a Briton, a tribal Briton fighting the Romans. He may have been one himself in a way. Sorry, well, he might have been Roman. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, like this we're the de- part Roman. The dates are off, right? Like we don't know what the exact range, right? So even when you're dealing with a range, it's like, okay, maybe this happened 50 years earlier than this. Hmm. That's a long time. Like that's enough time for we. Anyway, we don't know what his background is. And there are there is a theory that he was a Roman centurion. We'll talk about that in a sec. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the idea that maybe he was a bit of a bastard. Maybe his father was a Roman, his mother was a Briton. It's Who like Jon Snow. Yeah. That totally. actually makes sense. I mean, he would be the figure to, you got nothing to lose when you're 
in that situation, right? True. You can rise up and you can kill 900 men. And if you rise die, it don't up, matter. Rise up. <laughs> God. <laughs> Sorry. Let's walk into a Sunday service here. Like, what's going on here? Oh, man. <laughs> Let's go into another possible location. Sure. Because we've got one in Somerset. And it's known as Cadbury Castle, not the name of uh, the, the chocolate factory. Cadbury. Mm, oh, it's chocolate. Damn. So this is an Iron Age hill fort that is located in Somerset near Yeoville. And that again, sorry. <laughs> that one was me. I don't know if you guys heard that. That one was my stomach that time. Oh, boy. Okay. We're hungry. Okay. Uh, anyway, so this was actually referred to as a location of Four Camelot by the antiquarian John Leland in his itinerary of 1542. So this is quite reference. Quite reference. This is quite old, this reference. Yeah. Leyland actually fervently believed that King Arthur was real, and he was a historical fact. So there have been excavations, archaeological uh, excavations of the site, which reveal a substantial building, which could have housed a great hall. And it's also clear that some of these Iron Age defenses could have been, or had been, sorry, re-fortified, creating an even larger extensive defensive site, larger than any known fort of this period. Okay, and okay. actually, this is interesting, there were shards of pottery from the Eastern Mediterranean found, showing great wealth and trade. So it's, okay. it seems probable that this hill fort was a castle or palace during the Dark Ages for a ruler or king, someone such as Arthur. That makes sense because mm-hmm. we, obviously we know during this period, it wasn't as extensive trade. It wasn't as, you know, uh, it was the Dark Ages, right? So but it's like, you would have needed to be a king to have things like that coming from the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. for sure. You would have needed to be a person of significance yes or to be someone greatly respected that would have had gifts of this sort of stature bestowed upon you whether it was a gift whether it was acquired through trade you know we don't know right right yeah there is a few other well there's there's a couple other places that could be the location and one is referenced by again joffrey and he talks about the birthplace of king arthur possibly being tintagal castle Tintagel? Tintagel? Tintagel. Of Cornwall? Of Cornwall. Interesting, right? Hmm. So a 1,500-year-old piece of slate with two Latin inscriptions was found at this site in the late 1980s, which would seem to link Arthur to this place, potentially. The second inscription on the slate reads, Artogno? Artogno, okay. Father of a descendant of Call has had made King Cole, old King Cole, the nursery rhyme is, is comes from this, I guess, is said by Joffrey of Mammoth to be one of Arthur's ancestors. Hmm. Trying to find the lineage of Arthur here. Okay. There's obviously super contentious when it comes to this idea with this site actually being newer than the possible, like a 1,500-year-old piece of slate. Hmm. That's really old yeah <laughs> no like that's within range i mean we're it's obviously within range but yeah you're right it would have been maybe not a direct descendant but an ancestor right right hmm that's an interesting idea but obviously we're going with the like he was born here stayed there that's the location of camelot you know what i mean like just like a ruler would be born to the throne and you stay on the throne type of deal hmm. i don't know about that yeah. another location is winchester <laughs> hampshire <laughs> hampshire oh okay um and this, of course, this comes from Thomas Mallory, 15th century work that we've mentioned. Yeah, it said that Winchester Castle was the court of Camelot. That's just what Thomas Mallory says. You mean so Winchester Castle? Winchester, Winchester Castle was, was where Camelot was located. So another totally different place. Each book has its own Camelot. Yeah. Each. I feel like we're not really getting very far with this one, hey? This is kind of a nugget that, to me, this is the piece of the puzzle that is... The most fantastical, especially when you get into the later references to these elaborate round tables to the, you know, like this great hall and all this kind of thing. Like for me, especially during this time, right, perhaps, perhaps in a moment of history, something like this could have existed quite briefly and then perhaps could have been burned down quite easily too. You know what I mean? Like, so it could have maybe existed and then quickly gone away. It actually could have been all four of these locations that we've talked about at different periods of time. Potentially, Mm -hmm. potentially. Because I would imagine that, again, right, just 
thinking about the instabilities of the time, you would have been a little bit more mobile, like your court would have been more mobile. And as a, as a military commander, you would have been definitely more mobile because you're always on the road. So whether or not you do have this sort of legendary place that you can go back to, that's like brick and mortar, or if you're constantly kind of shifting it around and then it's just up to the creative imaginations of these later writers and poets and and historians and whatever else. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Cause like to me, all of these are kind of like, they're very loose, but again, there, there's, there's, there is little threads. Yeah. No, there definitely is. <laughs> Loose threads. <laughs> Loose threads. Let's jump right into evidence and theories then. We're, sure. I mean, the whole episode has been discussing evidence and yeah. theories basically, right? Yeah. But <laughs> we can kind of it. like just sort of re- reiterate some of these things. So Glastonbury Abbey was one of the best possible pieces of evidence. Of course, we don't have the evidence anymore mm-hmm. other than the fact that we know there was burial spots here. So 1962, we mentioned there was the archaeological dig, found evidence of a tomb, but it had been disturbed. So there was burial spots here. Mm-hmm. So we're just going on the word of the monks. Yeah. A lot of people I mean, get buried at um, abbeys, though. You know what I mean? Doesn't but if the, to... cro- if the cross was real, that's True. the thing. That's that, the thing we don't know. Oh, that, to me, is the annoying part because that cross made of iron should have been around. It's hard to destroy a huge metal Who cross. says it's destroyed? It's or just, just not. It's or... just gone. Yeah. Um, well, I was just thinking back to like when Louis VIII destroyed the whole place. Like, yeah, what a great guy. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the idea... Okay, there's also the idea we mentioned that he could have been mistaken. For another historical figure. And one of the most interesting ones with this is that he could have been a Roman centurion named Lucius Artorius. Mm. So who fought against the Picts. So these were northern tribes um, that in the dark ages of Scotland, right? Like basically tribes of Scotland. Fought against them on Hadrian's Wall in the second century AD. So, you know, sort of some 300 years earlier than the time at, at which Arthur actually, you know, the dates are normally set. So again, unlikely that this would actually be the source of Arthur, but some people do believe that he could have been a Roman centurion. Or what if that was his father? Hey, there you go. Mm-hmm. That that's, actually that's makes going sense. Back to my whole like life of Brian kind of like. <laughs> well, actually, though, seriously, yeah. I, that kind of makes sense potentially, right? Mm-hmm. John Snow, uh, yeah. Um, hmm. I, I like that idea. All right. All right. What else do we have here? I the like idea. That idea. <laughs> so that means it's more true. <laughs> <laughs> Other people believe he could have been a Scottish king, right? A sixth century Scottish king. So not not oh, specifically okay. king of the Britons or whatever, but but somewhere on the Isles. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was that guy, David Carroll, who's a historian. He has spent more than 25 years researching this legend and the idea that Arthur could have been a real person. And this this sort of quest of his, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Epic his, quest. His epic modern quest has taken him all over Europe. <clears throat> and he's, he's examined a lot of ancient documents, a lot of manuscripts, a lot of pretty reliable um, re- historical sources. Yeah, yeah. And he actually found a manuscript hidden away in a restricted section of the town library in a, a little tiny town called Schaufhausen in Switzerland. And this, uh, David Carroll actually believes that he has irrefutable proof that Arthur... Um, was actually sourced from a 6th century Scottish prince. So the legend of the Arthurian legend was actually this Scottish guy. Right. And this manuscript is actually referred to as the Dornebe uh, manuscript, and it was written by 7th century monks. So it's one of the oldest historical documents in the world to mention Arthur. We make that reference right. historical document versus like a piece of literature, even though that like could a poem be considered. Or whatever, exactly, right? exactly. So yeah, this story. He's actually referred to as Arturius, and it's pretty much identical to that of the legendary king we all know today as King Arthur. So gotcha. there's a lot of parallels going on here. Is that the same name as the Roman centurion? No, 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 no. The last name, Artorius. Mm-hmm. Lucius Artorius. And then here down here, we've got Arturius. So it's first a U name. instead of an O. And, hmm. and it's, well, but that's just it, though. Like, a lot of people were referred to by their surnames back in the day. Very so true. So you never know. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, this, this more modern idea. So in recent years, this um, idea of like a, a forbidden secret history has emerged. Right. Especially in regards to the King Arthur legends. Yep. And yeah, there's there's definitely been a lot of sort of like conspiracy led pop culture fiction or like what we can refer to as King Arthur creepypastas. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> you know, just people taking on and and. It's interesting because this is actually a modern version of what 
potentially was just going on in the six centuries too you know yeah, what i mean and definitely. all the way up throughout the middle ages and the dark ages and the high whatever totally so that's kind of fun i just what are, what are, really though like what are your thoughts like when we're coming down to the end of this like we've done a summary research of this topic we haven't gone extensively into you know like this could be an entire podcast it really on its, could. In, in and of itself. It could. We tend to do that all the time. <laughs> we do. We, we pick topics that are way bigger than we can handle sometimes. The scope. Um, but we but love it. We do. I, you know, having read all this stuff and talked about this for a while here now, I'm of the mind that he probably was a real person, or at least that there was a real person that was the basis of the mm-hmm. legend, obviously. A nugget. He may not have been named Arthur, right? Like we're looking here that there's sort of these Latin versions of what it would have morphed into with Mm -hmm. the stories of Arthur. But I think there really was a guy. I think there really was a guy who was slaughtering 900 people on the battlefield. Uh, And that's where at least the nugget came from. Well, even so, like, you know, we we talked about this again, the idea of exaggerating uh, historical fact in um even in our very first episode right was it fifty thousand men that were swallowed up in the sea or sand or was it really 500 or maybe five thousand? what if king arthur it's pretty epic to think that someone could even slay 90 people in a battle so you just tack on another zero just make it that much more epic and that much more unachievable to the you know everyday average joe blow back in the day right then you're then you're creating the legend but that to me yeah totally that to me is the there's sort of two versions of secret history, like we mentioned here at the end, and that's where like the hardcore historians are like, Arthur's not real. You know what I mean? The the Ark of the Covenant's never going to be found. Like these types of things, because there's no proof. I need hardcore proof. I need it right in front of my face for it to be true. Mm. And they don't believe in the idea of secret history or hidden history, right? Like the things that people like that's the conspiracy theory or to them. But not even lost is lost. Maybe lost, not hidden, but lost. Lost. And it's lost for two different reasons. Lost because it's straight up can't be found, like there's no records of something, right? Or lost because it's exaggerated. It's lost in, there's parts of it is true, but we don't know because it's lost. Was it 90? Was it 900? Was it 50,000? Was it 500? That's just it. These things are true, but to what extent? Mm -hmm. So that is the secret history too, right? But if there's not people like us that are like believing in the weird craziness, nothing would ever get found, discovered. There would be no drive to kind of confirm or deny or, you know what I mean? Like either way. Exactly. Yeah. And this is still ongoing. People are looking for King Arthur's bones. People are looking for the court of Camelot still to this day. LIDAR is relatively new. I think we're going to find it. I think we're going to find something that people will definitively be able to point to and say, Mm -hmm. maybe we'll even find the cross. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Even I'm just going to go back from to my first thought. Well, one of my first thoughts on the top of the episode there. The idea that even if even if Arthur wasn't the Arthur that we think of, that's right. Like he could have he could have been a real person. He could have been a, a great general. There could have been maybe a conflation of a couple different great generals. But the idea that he does exist in the collective unconscious of yeah so many people throughout so many centuries all the way up to right now where we're sitting in modern times yeah that to sure. me i can i in my head that means that he was a real person right whether or not he really was flesh and bones like that's an interesting way to take it mm-hmm. yeah for sure mm-hmm. yeah history is a weird thing right His, yeah. history is a weird it's kind of a weird thing we want to know what all of y'all think though. yeah so get at us with your theories if you have any other ideas or any other evidence that we didn't really talk about because yeah. let's get the conversation going on patreon we want to we want to com- connect with you all yeah we we haven't really done that yet like we don't get a lot of conversations going on here uh but we definitely want to know what you guys have to think mm-hmm. like do you believe he was a real person if you guys have any interesting articles that you want us to post on the patreon feed that would be awesome because then that would really help get the conversation going definitely mm-hmm. all right well we're gonna try to do that and uh we look forward to chatting with you guys about king arthur and the legend of uh, king arthur yeah so thank you to all of you for all your patience and understanding seriously thank it's you it's been such a weird time in our lives it's just yeah. so crazy it is we're sitting down saturday morning we get up put the coffee on and we're like okay let's get this done let's, yep. let's record this we got the bacon going i gotta get to work and it's like yeah it's crazy oh yeah <laughs> it's fun but it's crazy so yeah, yeah thank you for mm-hmm. your patience guys and um 
Yeah. If you don't feel like commenting on here, you can always email us, right? Into yeah. the portal mailbox at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And stay tuned for, I mean, we're already into uh, June here. So stay tuned for June Patreon exclusives that are be coming down the pipe for you guys. Mm-hmm. If you have any suggestions, let us know. We yeah. have a few ideas and we're kind of working on a few different topics, but it's all really open. So we're, we're always open. Always so open. Us. Always. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. And uh, until next time on Into the Portal. Here. Your gateway to the bizarre. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.